Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. If you don't, uh, grab one that should be in the pew rack in front of you and find the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right about 523 is where we're going to be here this morning. You can turn to right the middle of your Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9 is where we're going to be uh, in this book. Last week, um, Steve shared with us from the first part of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to finish this chapter and just take a little bit of a peek into chapter 10 before we're done here today. Uh, but this is a, um, an important chapter. Last week, Tom, uh, Steve talked about uh, death, and he ended, uh, which is something that, you know, something that Steve said last week really struck with me is that, that he mentioned that all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been observing joy. And it's not until chapter 9 to where he commands it, that he turns on all of, that, of what he's learned and he says, now, in light of your coming death, in light of the reality that one day we will all step uh, into the grave, I commend joy. Uh, live life with the wife of you, uh, in your vain life that you live under the sun. So uh, last week was very instructive for us. And all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been showing us the certainty of death. Have you seen that theme? That no matter who you are, no matter young or old or rich or poor or black or white or achieving or non-achieving or uh, tall or short or anything else, uh, whatever it is, all of us are facing the reality of death in life under the sun. And Solomon, in his philosophical wanderings, continues to come and bump up against death. It continues to be the, the end of all things for him in life or under the sun. He can't explain it. It doesn't make sense. Though God has put eternity in our hearts, he says that mankind cannot find out the things that God has done under the sun from beginning to end. Man does not understand it, but he knows for certain that death is coming. Now, uh, we're going to continue to look. We're in the section of Ecclesiastes here where he's, he's, he's asked and answered one big question, the first of which uh, was in chapter 6 about what is good for man to do during the days of his life. And then he pivoted in chapter 7, 8, 9, and into chapter 10 where he's asking, uh, how can man know what's going to come after him? And he's been giving us this theme and asking that question by illustrating the, the very plain reality that you don't know what tomorrow brings. Amen? You don't know what's going to happen Monday. You don't know what's ahead. And in light of our inability to gauge what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next week, what's going to happen six months from now, Solomon has continued to show us that we, to navigate the the currents and the tides of life have to use wisdom. And wisdom isn't an ultimate thing, but it's a helpful thing. It's been something that Solomon has looked to to say that the wise, they have eyes in their head, but the fool walks in darkness. So while wisdom is a good thing, it's not an ultimate thing. So we're going to examine wisdom again in light of what Solomon has been saying here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. He talked about death. He talked about commanding joy, and now toward the end of this chapter and into chapter 10, he's going to address wisdom yet again. Let me show you um, a contrast that has been building since chapter 7. Now, Solomon has said, certainty of death, certainty of death, certainty of death, and it's balanced, that certainty of death is balanced with the uncertainty of life. We all know we're going to die, but that certainty all along the way of our lives is characterized by uncertainty, isn't it? We don't know the kinds of jobs we're going to get or not get. We don't know the kind of lives that we're going to lead. COVID can happen and mess up two years of all of our planning and ambition and desires and thoughts about our future. That we face a consistent irregularity and uncertainty about our lives, though we know death is certain. Watch this. Are you in Ecclesiastes 9? Now, look at the beginning of the chapter, and I'm just going to go back three chapters with you and show you what he's been saying to illustrate this idea that we don't know what comes after us. Look at Ecclesiastes 9.1. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him, it's the same for all. 
Since the same event, death, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, him who does not sacrifices. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Go back into chapter 8. Look at 8.14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Don't that bother you? Go back one more chapter. Look at 7.15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Life is uncertain. Life is not fair. Life is not consistent. Life is irregular. Life often is irrational. So here's what I want to ask. Before we get going, I want you to take 30 seconds, and I want you to think about this main singular question that's going to help us think about these few verses that we're going to wrestle with today. Think about the wisest person you know. All right? Mentally or physically, if you actually write stuff or just tap it on your phone, whatever you do, write down two or three things that for you makes you say that. So think about it. Is it a coach, an educator, a teacher, a professor, a friend, a family member? What makes you say in your mind and in your heart, that person is wise? And we're going to examine that question here as we get into this text. All right? Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that we can uh, gather here together and sing and pray and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. For these few minutes, would you capture our attention and our affections around the truth of who you are? Would you change our hearts? Would you change our perspectives? Would you change the tendencies that we have to live lives that are focused on ourselves and instead, for the few minutes that we're here, focus our mind and heart on you and your glory? Let your word guide us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, take a look there. Nine, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 11. You see, uh, 9-11, there begins, wisdom is better than folly. Now, this better than is, is a, something that he's going to say throughout both chapter 9 and chapter 10. He's going to contrast the wise and the foolish. And again, Solomon is incredibly disciplined, and he's only looking at life under the sun. God is not mentioned from chapter 9, verse 11, all the way through to the end of chapter 10. So what Solomon is going to do is really examine what it looks like for life as a wise person and what it looks like for life as a fool. Do you know any fools? I mean, all of us are wise in here. But let's just pretend for a minute that you know some people who are foolish. What makes them foolish? What makes us wise? What makes us foolish? What makes them wise? That's what Solomon's going to examine. And he's going to pull out Uh, some assumptions for us right at the beginning of this passage that are going to be really helpful for how you think about wisdom and how you think about applying wisdom to your life tomorrow on Monday morning. Look at verse 11. Again, I saw under the sun. Now, that's characterized all of Solomon's thinking. He's very stepwise in the ways that he thinks about wisdom. He's going to observe, and then he's going to interpret for us. So look at his observation. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. He's going to start with physical attributes, then he's going to shift and move to intellectual and mental attributes. But the first ones, I think, are important for us to focus on. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. You can put in, you want to make a note, put in the tortoise and the hare right there. I mean, we all have these stories. Anybody who watches sports for any amount of time can name upsets, can't we? Anybody watch the tournament this year? I've watched this many games, and all I've heard is about all of the upsets in the NCAA men's basketball tournament this year. Ecclesiastes 9-11. Where Solomon begins is where we all like to begin. We all like to take a perspective on life that we think the people who are the most successful are going to be the strongest and the fastest, don't we? 
My son is playing Little League right now, and there's a kid on his Little League team who says he's eight. I mean, he's about my size. You ever been there, fellas? You remember coming up in sports, playing sports, and you go, man, that kid, I faced Todd Alcatara. Todd could throw. He looked like Randy Johnson on the mound. Randy Johnson's like 6'7", and then he's elevated above the batter. And when he throws, he looks like it's just, you know, hot fire coming at you. That's who I faced. This kid was like 6'1", 165. I was 11. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is, this is going to go bad. And did he win? He won. He won all the time. He was terrifying as an athlete. Uh, but oftentimes, you, re- you remember these moments, don't you? We could go around the room and talk about, you know, not many of us are professional weightlifters, professional soldiers. Anybody, any UFC fighters in here? Colin? No? Not doing it? Okay. See, so maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not a way that you look at life. But a lot of us, though, in a city like Charleston that has a lot of uh, uh, educational institutions that focus on the intellect and the wisdom and the opportunity that a city like Charleston would provide for you. Maybe you're more in the second part of this verse. Look at verse 12. I'm sorry, the remainder of verse 11. Uh, Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise. Just because you're wise don't mean you eat good, nor riches to the intelligent. Just because you're smart doesn't mean you're wealthy. Amen? Nor favor to those with knowledge. Just because you know a lot doesn't mean people like you. But time and chance happen to them all. You remember Ecclesiastes 7? I read you one part of Ecclesiastes 7. I'll read you this one. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And see, we all make assumptions in life. We all have this tendency to put ourselves at the center of our life and to be the hero of our life. And what we feel, whether we say it or not, is that when we approach the horizons of our lives, the, the, the north stars of our lives, whether it's uh, I want to be married, I want to make a million before I'm 30, I want to have that car, I want to go this place, I want to do this thing, that we all put ourselves in the posture of the individual who is going to leverage our skills and abilities, our gifts and our talents, to accomplish and bend life to work the way we want it to. And Solomon, right in the beginning, right on the heels of talking about the fact that both the wicked and the righteous die, so enjoy life with the woman that you love, Then he starts to expose sort of an unspoken theological grid that we look at life in. That we all approach life assuming that we have what it takes to make our dreams come true. I mean, this is every movie you ever watch. That the protagonist ultimately figures out a way to overcome the difficulties of life through ingenuity, through great skill set, through financial um, uh, wisdom, so that finally they can make life work on their terms. And Solomon shows this to us in such a way that he's able to say, listen, no matter who you are, no matter what uh, line of work you are in, no matter what amount of wisdom and experience you have, time and chance happen to us all. You don't, listen, you don't even have to be a Jesus follower. You know this is true. You know that there are car wrecks that you will get into. You know that the plane will have to get de-iced and you won't make it there on time. You know that your job will get downsized, that you won't hit your numbers, that the contract won't be renewed, that uh, the relationship won't work out, that there will be uh, sicknesses or strokes or changes in life or weather or patterns or hurricanes that impose themselves on your life. And it doesn't matter how gifted and how experienced and how wise and how wealthy and how insightful you are, you live in a world that feels like chaos. Have you been there? 
Anybody have something in their life in the last 18 months that had nothing to do with how you were prepared, how wise you were, how rich you were, how wealthy you were, how insightful you were, no matter how much experience you had in your field, that there was something you could not control at all? See, we're all like this. We all bring just this impulse. It's the Genesis 3 impulse of Eve that we bring to life that life ought to work on my terms. I ought to have what I want. And if I'm savvy enough, if I'm uh, manipulative enough, if I'm strong enough, I can make my dreams come true. But Solomon says it doesn't always work like that. That there are people who are fools who get rich. There are people who aren't intelligent who find great reputation. I mean, just reverse everything that he's just said there. That there are people who eat well who are foolish. There are people who aren't intelligent who get rich. There are people with, uh, low, uh, with uh, great reputation who have no knowledge. There are people who win the race who aren't fast. There are people who win the battle who aren't strong. And we look at life and we go, it, not, it shouldn't work like that. Don't you feel that? If you're honest, you know that you face time and chance realities that frustrate you. They frustrate me. It ought to have worked out better. That relationship ought to have worked. I'm supposed to be married by now. I'm supposed to have no more debt at this point. I'm supposed to not be so leveraged. I'm supposed to be... Fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. I'm supposed to be, I wasn't supposed to lose my health. Time and chance happens to us all. So Solomon exposes us, doesn't he? He shows us who we are. That whether we want to believe it or not, we all have a hero's ambition, a man-centered theology that gets interrupted by time and chance. So, not only is life inconsistent, not only do we encounter life as irregular and irrational at times, but take heart, look at verse 12. For man does not know his time. Not only is life inconsistent, but I am ignorant. Welcome to Citadel Square if you are new. <laughs> Solomon says it. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. What's he saying? Fish in a net, birds in a snare. Do you know what he's trying to say? He's trying to say that life is unpredictable. Birds go along and don't consider how life is going to go until immediately they're caught and they're trapped and something happens to them immediately. Fish swimming along, doing whatever fish do until they are caught and they are snared and they are in a net. Life changes for them. There's nothing like a good, irregular experience to make birds and fish of us all. And Solomon humbles the pride of people who think that they are able to leverage their skills and abilities upon life and make it work for themselves. He said, you're just like a fish, you're just like a bird. Those things happen, you don't expect them. Those things happen and you're not in control. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when suddenly it falls upon them. You know, one of the things that I think for us, and let's just apply this to 2022 and where we are, one of the things that makes this um, reality feel far from us is the consistent advancement in technology. People will ask sometimes, hey, if you could live at any period of time whatsoever, what period of life would you like to live in? I was like, whatever was after Novocaine. That's when I would want to live. Can you imagine dental work with no Novocaine? You want to live in that time? See, technology advances, and for us who live in the land of perpetual technological advancement, we live in homes where we can control both the humidity and the temperature of air. We are gods. We can push a button and we can illumine or we can darken entire spaces in our homes. We can control the pressure 
the temperature to the degree of the water that comes into our homes. You ever have a hot water heater go out in February? (laughs) I have. Showering at friends' houses is humbling. I'll tell you that for sure. You ever have the Wi-Fi go out? And what do you do? You go to the box and you go out, unplug it, and plug it back in. And I've reached the end of my intellectual prowess with Wi-Fi. That's it. That's all I know how to do. Time and chance. Isn't that humbling? There's this box of technology that gets, we have all of our shows, what is it called? On demand. I want leisure, now feed me. I want my food delivered, send it to me. I want the ambitions of my heart to be realized immediately. And what happens? We step out of the front door and somebody hits your car. You go to work and you get downsized. You encounter life and life doesn't play well. And it exposes in us this consistent desire that we have to create Eden on earth without God. Just let, we have all of the knowledge in the world right here in the palm of our hand. Right there. What do you want to know? All I got to do is tap it. Talk to it. It obeys me. Perfectly. Mostly perfectly, if you can understand. You get the idea. When it suddenly falls upon them. So, let's look at a picture. You like stories? Solomon is going to tell you a story. Before that, I had a college roommate uh, who, uh, you say dumb stuff in college, okay? We've all said dumb stuff in college. I had a roommate who believed that he was the single best ice cream picker there was. He could always pick the absolute perfect best ice cream. He also believed that there were times, he didn't believe this, that if I was driving and everybody else just went bonkers and started doing lunatic things in their cars, that I could navigate it just fine. I don't know why he thought that. I don't know what amount of information he had that made him think that he was able to do that, but he really believed that. That he brought to life this self-confidence in who he was and his ability to navigate the changes of life. Now, let's look at a story. Look at verse 13. I've also seen this example of wisdom. So you see what, he's, you see what he's doing. He's exposing this ambition that is in our hearts, this, this self-man-centered belief that if we are wise enough and smart enough and intelligent enough, we can make life work on our terms. But life doesn't work like that. I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me, which is another way for Solomon to say, this had a real impact on me. Now imagine Solomon, the wisest man on earth at the time, telling you a story that he said really made an impact on him. Watch this. Look at verse um, 14. There was a little city with a few men. This whole story works on reversals. He just shared with us in 11 and 12 that there are reversals in life, right? The rich don't always get ahead. The the wise don't always get ahead. The knowledgeable aren't always honored. Now he's going to give you a story and an illustration of that very thing. There's a little city with a few men in it. Little bitty place, just a few people. What comes against it? A great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. See the contrast? Little and few, great and great. Who's going to win? What do you think? Don't read ahead. You're reading ahead already. Don't read your Bible. (laughs) There was a little city with a few men. Great king came against it, besieged it, building great siege works against it. That siege works is the great, is the same name, same word, I'm sorry, for net in the previous thing, talking about fish. This city is, is, is ensnared. This city is captured. This city uh, has a great king advance again, against it without uh, any awareness whatsoever. Life happens. Verse 15, but there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. So here's a perfect illustration of what Solomon was just saying. That the race, the battle isn't always to the mighty. The battle isn't always to the swift and to the strong. Rather, a poor but wise man, by his wisdom, delivers the city. See, wisdom is helpful. 
Wisdom can turn the tables. But then he finishes the story with one little bitty phrase that is the punch in this story. Yet no one remembered that poor man. Solomon, I thought you said wisdom was good. Wisdom was, is, is important. Wisdom is a good thing to have. Yeah, well, what's the other unspoken ambition that's in our heart? The first one is to win, to have and make an impact. The next one is to have influence, is to be recognized, is to be remembered, is to have a monument to my name because of the wisdom that I was able to use in a time of great crisis and great need. Yet no one remembered that poor man. Now, here's the thing. What is Solomon saying? Is Solomon saying wisdom is worthless? Because if you approach this text thinking that a man-centered wisdom will now get me out of situations and cause life to work on my terms, then you're going to misuse wisdom. And Solomon exposes us again by saying, not only will life be irrational and uncertain, but your wisdom that you apply in this life may not even be remembered. Verse 16, but I say that wisdom is better than might. I saw this happen in a story. I saw this happen with my eyes, that this poor man leveraged his wisdom and turned out, turned the tables on this mighty and great king, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Why has this man been referred to three times as poor in two verses? Why don't you think he's remembered as influential? Because he's poor. He doesn't matter. Like, do you ever, uh, you know, I, I work in, this is, I think this is in every career field. In every career field, you have unspoken social power dynamics. You know what I mean? Where you know that there are the people who are impressive, the people who are listened to, the people who have a platform, and the people who are not. And Solomon, right here at this point, shows you that there is wisdom, but wisdom is in a place that is not very popular. It's in a place that you don't want to go. It's effective and it's useful. It actually will even save a city and it's more important than weapons of war. But I don't really want that wisdom because along with it comes this poverty, comes this individual I don't want to spend a lot of time with. Somebody who you don't want to put on the front page. He goes on, verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. You want to take a note? Just put elections right there. So are you seeing the, not only does time and chance happen to all these things, right? All of these rich, wise, intelligent, swift, strong people. Not only do I live in a world that is profoundly uncertain and unreliable with circumstances that I cannot control, but I also live in this world, and I'm not alone, I live in this world with people. Don't, you, don't I? And there are people that I know who don't value the wisdom from people who are unpopular. who would rather there be public acclaim and loud shouting and lots of loud opinions rather than simple, quiet wisdom from a poor man. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Let me ask you, where, where is your attention drawn Is your attention drawn, generally speaking, to public opinion and what news people say or what one individual with a microphone who has a platform thinks? 
Is your heart drawn into popular opinion and fear of man and concern with what everybody thinks rather than what one person thinks who might actually have the words of wisdom in your life? Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In context, what's the one sinner? Who is it? It's the ruler shouting among fools. It's one idiot with a microphone who can sway massive amount, massive appeal, massive groups of people and quiet and silence the poor, simple, wise, insightful, saving word of the wise. It just takes one fool to ruin all that wisdom can accomplish. That's what he says, how he, how he leverages and goes into verse 10. Look at, I'm sorry, chapter 10. Look at chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Now, I don't make perfume, but I assume that's true. Maybe you make perfume. I doubt anybody has thought, we need to put a dead fly in this to make it smell better. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So... Up to this point, what does folly look like? Folly is loud, isn't it? Folly shouts. Folly is in places of great acclaim and great popularity. But wisdom is is quiet. Wisdom is in places where it's unpopular. Wisdom is even with the poor. Do you see the reversals? Now here in context, look at what else he says about folly and about wisdom. In context, wisdom smells how? Smells good. But folly smells bad. You can apply that however you want. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He changes the illustration. It's not just a scent illustration. It's now a weight illustration. What's heavy? Foolishness. Foolish words. What's light? Wisdom. Have you found that in our culture and in our time, you are expected to have an opinion on everything and to proclaim that opinion everywhere at all times to as many people as possible? We live in a time and a place where you are under verbal assault with opinions consistently. And your job as you navigate life in this sinful, uncertain, with fickle people kind of world is to seek wisdom, is to look for it. And the way that you're going to look for wisdom, the way that you're going to experience the aroma and the beauty of the scent of wisdom and to watch uh, and understand wisdom is going to seek for it in quiet and simple and unassuming places. Have you found that yet? That there's a reality to wisdom and foolishness that foolishness, generally speaking, is incredibly popular. I'm not saying all the time, and I'm not saying every time. But generally speaking, foolishness outweighs wisdom, doesn't it? Generally speaking, foolishness is more publicly proclaimed than wisdom, right? And it just takes a little bit of foolishness to ruin wisdom. Wisdom is like a deer. I've been deer hunting one time. We woke up really, really early. I sat in the snow and it was cold. I watched the sunrise and we went home. You know how many deer we saw? Zero. That was the last time I ever went deer hunting. But I'm told that when you hunt deer, they're skittish. The slightest smell, they can move and they're gone. And they run like a deer. They're incredibly fast. Any movement, any shadow, any scent can spook them and they're gone. That's how wisdom is. One little bit of foolishness that smells bad, wisdom is gone. One little bit of foolishness outweighs wisdom and you lose it. What is the thing in this book that has ruined the life of the wise? Money. How fast can you go from wise to foolish? How fast can you screw up your life and go, man, I've got a lot of regret? 
15 seconds. Christians, you know this, don't you? Men, women who've been walking with God for a long time, you have situations in life and seasons of life that you wish you had back, amen? Man, so do I. That it was just a moment, it was just a brief, it was just a, a decision, it was just, and I wish I would have had it back and it could have changed the course of my life. <clears throat> Excuse me, my life. Verse two. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, uh, it's not so much directional, though these individuals walk in two different directions. The right, biblically, typically has to do with power and strength and skill. David says, don't let my right hand forget its skill. Typically, generally speaking, most are right-handed, and that's your strong side. The fool... His heart inclines him to the left, to the place of insensitivity, the place of lack of skill, the place of naivety, the place of inability. But watch, Solomon again is talking about the heart of the individual, that wisdom comes out of our heart. Foolishness comes out of our heart and Solomon says he recognizes it and is able to identify it as that you and I have wise and foolish heart inclinations, don't we? We have ways in which our heart believes lies and moves us towards weakness and foolishness and insensitivity and uncertainty and, and ways in which we want to control life. And then we have wise inclinations that, that kind of wait. Paul says like um, something, something, wage war against the flesh. I can't forget it. Take that out. Can't even remove that. That was dumb. Here's the thing. We all face these left and right decisions all the time, don't we? We all have these moments in life where we're trying to be wise or we're, or, or we're moving toward foolishness. We're, we're, we're navigating this left and right reality to life. And then Solomon says this, that these individuals walk in two different directions. Listen, I have seen this. I'm in my mid-40s. I've seen this with, gosh, elementary age kids. I've seen it in high school. I've seen it in college. You guys who are in college, you young adults, you are in groups of friends right now who you are starting to see decisions that they are making that are putting your lives on two different trajectories, right? Now, it's hard to screw up your life for a decade when you're 10, 11, and 12. But you, like kids, you feel that pull when you're around other kids where there are foolishness that they talk about, wise things that they talk about. And you face that tension if you're at school and you're in relationship with other friends, that there will be people who begin to talk foolishly and choose foolishness, not wisdom. Because they were around when I was a kid. They were around when I was in high school. They were around when your parents were in high school. You have high school friends who made bad decisions, anybody? You have, young, you have people in college that made decisions that now have affected the next 10 years of their life? It happens to all of us in every situation, in every group of people, whether you're an elementary-aged boy or girl, all the way into graduate school and you're building a family. You are going to have to face the tension in your life about whether or not you will walk in wisdom or walk in foolishness. Foolishness, incredibly popular. Foolishness, incredibly uh, uh, easy to hear. Wisdom, quiet. Wisdom, words from a place that you don't want to go. Wisdom, with people that might be unpopular. Do you see this? You feel these two? Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he's a fool. There it is again. Foolishness, popular. Foolishness uh, is proclaiming something about itself. Wisdom, quiet. Wisdom, gentle. Wisdom, smells good. Foolishness, smells bad. All of these sensory realities he's trying to get you to see. Now, 
you know, for us, it, let's think about this. Now, you have that person in mind that we started with, that person who you think about as wise. Usually when I think about wise people, I think about people with street smarts. I think about people who can see trends. I think about what Solomon has already said. I think about the intelligent. I think about the wealthy. I think about the successful. I think about people who've, who've made something of their life, who've made an impact. And my heart is drawn to them just like your heart is drawn to them, of thinking, how can I have a life like that? How can I find success like that? And I think for Christians and for Jesus followers who quite frankly, follow a poor individual who had the words of wisdom and life, that our lives ought to be characterized differently, shouldn't they? For Jesus followers and, and Christians, we ought to operate in life with a different perspective. And in that way, Solomon's words to us are distinctly Christian because wisdom in this book helps us see life correctly. If nothing else, Solomon has told you explicitly about the fact that you will die, life is inconsistent, you're not going to get any gain out of it whatsoever, that you're going to head to the grave, so you might as well enjoy the time while you're here. Now that's a pretty good lens to have on life, under the sun. But what if we began to think about the fact that Jesus has, has come, Jesus has forgiven our sins, Jesus has gone into the grave, risen from the dead, proclaimed victory over Satan's sin and death, and now here we are in 2022 desiring to honor him with our lives and to live lives that are wise. What would it look like for us to actually be wise because Jesus has risen? to think about what would it look like if our church was exhibiting wisdom? And to answer, to answer that question, turn with me to James 3. James mentions wisdom only four times, three of which are in this little bitty paragraph in the middle of James. It's in James chapter 3. Now in James chapter 2, let me turn over there with you. In James chapter 2, I'm sorry, uh, James chapter 3 in the beginning. You see chapter 3 verse 1? Are you all there? I'll let, wait for the pages to stop turning. In James 3 verse 1, he's talking about taming the tongue. Right? No man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. James chapter 4, he talks about quarrels. And before he gets into quarrels in James chapter 4, where he asks this question, what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, your desires wage war against your soul? Before he does that, he gives you a picture. Almost this, this beautiful Ecclesiastes 9 wisdom that is aromatic and, uh, and attractive and beautiful and insightful and it characterizes the kinds of uh, relationships and the kind of spiritual wisdom that we ought to see with one another. Because if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the temptation in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is that we would find wisdom useful to accomplish our ends, our desires, right? But God has designed wisdom in Ecclesiastes 9 and James chapter 3 that it might be beautiful and they're different. Look at Ecclesiastes, um, James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Here's James's answer to the question that I started with. Who are the individuals that you would look at and find that they are wise? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness is used in Galatians 5 as being a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus uses this term uh, of himself in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am, I'll tell you, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Let him show his good conduct in meekness. Well, what's the first mark of spiritual wisdom? It's gentleness. Now, the person that you thought of, would you call them gentle or would you call them insightful? 
Because James says spiritual wisdom comes with meekness and a gentleness. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Do you know what I'd call that? I'd call that, that's the kind of wisdom that's under the sun. What's the kind of wisdom that's under the sun? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. What did Solomon just say? I want to make an impact and I want to be influential and I want to use wisdom to do it. And James calls that unspiritual. Not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you feel the tension in Ecclesiastes 9 of the fool versus the wise? The tension between uh, there being conflict between those who are poor and quiet and uh, have a sense of a perfumer's smell about them and the, uh, the ugliness and the weightiness and the popularity of foolishness. Do you feel that tension of experience? James is talking about it here. Verse 17, well, what does wisdom look like, James? Here's what wisdom looks like. This is the answer to this question that Solomon is showing to us. Only it comes only through the work of Christ. See, if I use wisdom to accomplish my ambition, what I do is I put myself at the center of my story. I do not put Jesus Christ at the center. If I put myself at the center of my story, my ambition is that I would have an impact and that I would be influential, that I would be seen and recognized as wise, accomplished, powerful, beautiful, ambitious, successful. But if Jesus is at the center of my story, if I follow Christ and I take up my cross and begin to walk with him into areas of life, now my ambition in relationship with other people isn't about winning, it's about serving. It's not about accomplishing my end. It's not about me getting the glory. It's not about me being visible. It's not even about me being in control because I trust that there is somebody else who's in control. I trust that there's somebody else who's on the throne. I trust that there's somebody else's glory that I am after. And that now, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we don't proclaim ourselves as Lord, but Jesus, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That I can enter into, now watch this, isn't this amazing? James 3 now puts wisdom in a relational context. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 puts it in an accomplishment context. Leverage your wisdom for success and accomplishment and visibility and popularity. James says, leverage your wisdom into the gentleness of the relationships Leverage the spiritual wisdom, not toward conflict, but toward peace. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, if you want wisdom, Your ambition can't be just that it would be useful to you, but that it would be beautiful to others. So this changes the way that we relate to one another, doesn't it? That there is a tenderness and a kindness that only Christians can bring to their relationships. That only Christians can bring as they listen to the word of Jesus who had no place to lay his head who had no money at the end of his life, who laid his life down that others might be uh, encouraged and served and loved and built up. Christians, this is what it looks like for us to be wise. This is what it looks like for you to step into the workplace. This is what it looks like for you to lead your kids. This is what it looks like to begin to model things that you want in the lives of your children. Remember I said this three weeks ago, your parents, kids, want you to be wise. What if we started praying these kinds of verses for our kids? What if we started asking not just about what they were saying, but how they were saying it, right? What if we began to say, look, it's not about anybody winning in this situation, 
But what if we approached relationships with the goal of our words building up and making beautiful and making seen the fact that I don't need to win, I don't need to be in charge. I don't need to be in control, I don't need to have my reputation rise. But that I can access wisdom from heaven such that my relationships now begin to look and smell like perfumer's perfume. How about that? How about that was our church? How about we were so concerned with how we spoke to one another, whether or not we were building one another up, that you felt the meekness and gentleness of Christ in the relationships as we spoke to one another, as we encouraged one another, as we confronted sin with one another, that someone came to you and said, I think you're missing it, but they said it in such a way that it was so gentle and kind and pure and peaceable, right? In, uh, where is it? It's in the verse. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. That is New Testament biblical wisdom. And it is available to you and available to me only because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, this is something that we want and we cannot obtain. It's something we desire and we can't bring to fruition. It's something that uh, without the work of the Spirit in our midst and the power of Jesus Christ poured out toward us through your people, we cannot accomplish it. So Father, I pray that you would do that in us, that you do that in me, that you do that in our families, that you do that as we shepherd our kids, that you would do that through us as we work with those uh, in our workplaces and in our families and in uh, the careers that you have placed us, that there would be such an aroma of Christian wisdom, spiritual wisdom, of tenderness and mercy and impartiality and good fruit, and that we would desire to sow in peace that comes only because of Jesus and what he has done. It's in his name that we pray, amen.